This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. My three lectures are linked, of course, and they have to do with the early modern church. And today's lecture is on Catholic reform. Tomorrow's lecture will be on the Protestant challenge, uh, the 16th and 17th century. And then the third lecture uh, will, will be on sort of the, the religious culture of the Catholic Church in the early modern period, and one of the aspects that made it uh, quite different from the Protestant churches that had emerged. Um, one, one of my uh, central arguments in, in my Reformations book is that whenever there's a challenge to one's identity, so let's talk about the church, challenge to the church's identity and very being, the church has to uh, shape itself, not just internally uh, from its own principles and traditions, but has to shape itself uh, over and against the challenge. So the challengers actually affect the self-definition of the church. But today uh, we're, we're dealing with um, the big fix, capital B, capital F. And I'll preface, preface my lecture by saying this, that um, in standard uh, histories of this period, it used to be up until about the 1970s or 1980s, that if you read about the medieval church in any textbook, uh, that, that wasn't um, a Catholic textbook. You would basically get a description of the pathology of the medieval church, of everything that was wrong with it, as, as the reason for the Protestant challenge emerging. But what I have today here is um, focused to a great extent on the Council of Trent. And here, that's the big fix capital B, capital F. And I am one of those um, dinosaurs that remembers uh, the Catholic Church before the Second Vatican Council. And uh, boy, that, that's why it was a big fix. And it happened literally in some cases overnight. What I'm about to talk about did not happen overnight. It was a very lengthy process. It was a different age. And um, News could not travel all that fast. And the church was very different in 1500 than from 1965, uh, much less centralized and, and much less able to actually uh, institute the reforms that it wanted to institute. So having said that, uh, let me go to share screen. And there you should be seeing the title of today's lecture, Reforming the Bride of Christ, the new improved Tridentine Church. Um, new and improved for sure. Uh, why am I not, hold on a second. Somehow my slides are not moving. There we go. Okay, Council Trent. 1545 to 1563, 
it's not a single council, actually. It was three. It met in, in 25 sessions over three distinct periods. And there I list them for you. Um, and every time uh, they convened, there was a different profile to those who were attending. Throughout most of the council, the vast majority of those present were Italian bishops and Spanish. The French actually boycotted the council until the last session. Uh, the, the French monarchs were not too pleased with anything that would help centralizing the church in Rome uh, rather than in Paris. So um, the Italians and the Spanish uh, dominate this council. But here, this image, you know, is so highly symbolic. There on the lower right-hand corner, you see Mother Church wearing the papal tiara. And you see the Holy Spirit hovering over the council itself, directing it. Um, there's a wonderful book by uh, John O'Malley that gives you a brief history of the Council of Trent. And, and I, I think it actually reads a lot like a mystery novel in that you don't know what the ending is going to be until the, until the very last part of the book. But as you're reading, you're thinking all along, oh my God, this is going to crash. This is horrible. Nothing seems to be working. But that last session brought it all together. And we're dealing with a subject that has many names. This was the term used since the 19th century, counter-reformation, gegenreformation. Uh, it was coined by the Protestant historian Leopold von Ranke, and it emphasized the combative negative reaction of Catholicism against the German word gegen, Protestantism. And um, it didn't suit Catholics very well. Um, I attended Loyola University in Chicago for uh, for college, and and the course on this period uh, offered by the history department was entitled "The Protestant Revolt and the Catholic Reformation." Hence, there's a term coined in the 20th century by Catholic historians to emphasize the positive improvements that the Church made, and to kind of move them away from the the, the the perspective of just reaction, emphasizing the continuity of the medieval reforms with the early modern reforms. There's another term that's, that's occasionally used, Catholic revival, which is very similar to Catholic Reformation. Also used, and has been used for quite some time, Tridentine Reformation, it's very similar to Catholic Reformation, but it emphasizes the central role of the Council of Trent. And then there's this term, uh, again, John O'Malley, Jesuit historian, proposed this term in the 1990s to try to get away from all the polemically charged terminology of the past. All of these terms, I think, are useful and, and proper. There are actually some aspects of Catholic reform 
that you can actually use the term comfortably counter-reformation because we're, they were directed squarely against changes that Protestants had brought about. Catholic reform, as I said, took a long time. It's always happening. As a matter of fact, um, I always laugh when someone speaks about the crisis in the church as if uh, it's, it's, it's something new that the church is in crisis. What I like to say is the church is, has always been in crisis. From, from the time of Jesus and the apostles to the present, there hasn't been a single day in which the church hasn't been facing not just a crisis, but a constant series of crises. So, from 1378 to 1517, there were many reforms, uh, too many to list. But during this period, the challenges that the church faced tended to be purely internal. And all the major heresies uh, were locally contained to a high degree. Um, and uh, actually, when, when the Hussites sprung up in the 15th century, uh, they survived, and they were still challenging the Catholic Church in Bohemia uh, in 1517. Very much so, but it was contained. Different period, 1517 to 1545 from the uh, appearance of Luther to the opening of the Council of Trent, Catholics responded to this surprise, to the Protestant revolt, as ever, everyone called it. They were rebels, they were heretics, and they were rebelling against the Pope's authority. Uh, all the efforts were uh, often uncoordinated. And I should add, there were many voices being raised, call a council, call a council, call a council. But a string of popes between 1517, Pope Leo X to 1545, actually resisted calling a council because the great schism of the 15th century, early 15th century, had been settled by the Council of Constance at which conciliarists had taken charge and actually given councils more power than any pope would like. And uh, popes between 1517 and 1545 were afraid of a, a rebirth of conciliarism, which would make papal power perhaps even secondary to conciliar power. But in, by 1545, it just became clear, we have to do this. So we enter the third phase between 1545 and 63, when the council met and they were forced to devise coherent plans for thorough enforceable reforms. And I'll put an emphasis on that enforceable because it's one thing to call for reforms, it's quite another to put them in place. Fourth period is between 1563 and 1618, when the reforms of Trent began to be implemented, and when Catholics started to win back some territories that had been lost to Protestantism. 
And uh, notice that's a long stretch of time, 1563 to 1618. Um, it takes a long time for these reforms to take place. And, you know, for instance, in, in France, the, the monarch would not allow the decrees of the Council of Trent to be published uh, because of this fear of Roman centralism. And the fifth period from 1618 to 1700, when Catholic Baroque culture, I'll get back to that term soon enough, reached its zenith. And when uh, the Thirty Years' War breaks out, a series of religious wars that is devastating. And you have also at this time the rise of skepticism and empirical science. And these three things together, the religious wars, skepticism, and empirical science begin to erode the church's authority with ever-increasing intensity. So, you know, talk about a crisis. Well, at each one of these periods is a crisis, just a different kind of crisis, but it's still a crisis. So, on that negative sort of counter-Reformation side, what were Trent's responses to Protestantism, right? How did it clarify the belief and the piety and the ritual and the symbols, clarification of orthodoxy and orthopraxis? About salvation? No, no, Protestants were wrong. That's not salvation by grace alone, uh, faith. Faith alone. No, salvation is by faith and works. Grace, free will, and this surprises some people, predestination. Council of Trent actually says, yes, there is predestination. But it's wrong to try to make a guess as to whether you're predestined or not. And I'll emphasize this now and throughout. Council of Trent takes up uh, something that is, is one of the main characteristics of Catholicism since the first day, since early Christian days, which is the most serious, deepest truths, all of them involve paradox and mystery. So something that seems to us illogical, contradictory, how can you have free will and predestination at the same time? That is central. And Trent, every definition it makes, the Council of Trent makes, has this embrace of paradox deeply embedded in it. Ecclesiology and authority? Well, you know it. Don't have to spell it out. Got a pope, bishops, apostolic succession. The Bible, yes, not scripture alone, scripture and tradition. How about eschatology in the afterlife? Heaven, purgatory, and hell. Yes, but purgatory, the, the Protestants had gotten rid of purgatory. Very important part of Catholic uh, theology and, and Catholic piety until the late 20th century when it has gone into something of a dark corner. And this includes, yes, indulgences are real. Yes, the Pope can issue indulgences for those suffering in purgatory and for those who might eventually end up in purgatory. How about sacraments? Seven. 
Yes, seven is defined in 1215 by the Lateran Council. Seven, not just two, not just baptism and Eucharist, which is what the Protestant church has had. How about the Eucharist? Yes, transubstantiation, real presence, a sacrifice that transcends time and space and can be applied to souls in purgatory and actually to people on earth too. Every mass is not a recreation of Christ's sacrifice. You are there. You are there, and it happens. And Christ can be in a billion, trillion, quadrillion, infinite number of places at the same time. Ritual? Yeah, forget vernacular languages. We're all doing Latin. Images, rejected by Protestants. Relics, pilgrimages, all these things that were rejected by Protestants. Yes, 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 they're very good, they're very proper, and they're wonderful and most useful. How about intercession of the saints? Yes, most certainly. Yes, that's what the communion of saints means. You know, the church is universal, not just in terms of geography. It's universal in terms of time. We're all in the same church, the dead and the living. So the dead, if they're in heaven, they can intercede for the living. And the living can intercede for the dead in purgatory. Miracles? Oh, yes, you betcha. And uh, my third lecture will be mostly on this. Um, all the major Protestant reformers rejected the possibility of miracles post-first century. What does that mean? It's known as the, the, the it's not a doctrine, but it's, it's a position on miracles. The scholarly name for it is the cessation of miracles. The argument was made that miracles, of course, the New Testament is full of miracles. They were necessary to prove that Jesus and his apostles were actually working for God. But once the last apostle died, John, so somewhere around the year 100, that was it. No more miracles. How about clerical celibacy? Yes, but at the Council of Trent, the vote was very, very, very close. So this is still a hot button issue in the Catholic Church. It was a hot button issue in the 16th century as well. And how about asceticism and monasticism? Oh, yes, they're wonderful for the soul and for society. Self-denial? You betcha that's very good for you. It's good for everyone. And yes, God does pay attention to your actions and your choices, and you can be rewarded for self-sacrifice. Absolutely. Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin, totally wrong on this. Now, for a list of the fixes in the big fix. I'm listing this one as number one because traditional uh, historiography always focuses on the abuses of the late medieval church as the main reason for the Protestant Reformation. So what happened? What, what did get fixed? What were these abuses and how did they get fixed? And here you have a, uh, I think it's a 14th century or 15th century manuscript illustration of a monk uh, 
probably sent down to 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 get the wine and and uh taking a little too much for himself. How about this? Let's abolish the sale of church offices. Yeah, well, yes, that was common practice. Bishops bought their offices. Uh, and, and even parish clergy, their offices were bought and sold. Abolish plural benefices. That is holding more than one clerical office. This was endemic in the late medieval church. All right. And just these two alone, I'll give you an example of who is a perfect example of these two abuses. It's none other than the Protestant reformer, John Calvin, who received one benefice at the age of nine. And then at the age of 11, his father traded it for two more lucrative benefices. How can a nine and 11 year old serve these offices? He couldn't but it was good income and there was enough income that his father, Calvin's father, could pay a priest or priests, plural, to fill those offices. And the rest of the money went to funding little Johnny Calvin's education. So, about absenteeism? Well, Calvin also um, reified this. He embodied it. Clergy, including bishops, often did not reside in their offices. There were bishops who actually never set foot in their diocese. So, Council of Trent says, no, this has to stop. Must reside wherever you are assigned. And you can't have two bishoprics. Or bishoprics and an abbacy. Abolish clerical concubinage and enforce celibacy. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the vow of celibacy was disregarded throughout Catholic Europe. Um, another example of this is uh, the great humanist Erasmus. His father was a priest, uh, and he was a, an ecclesiastical bastard, uh, pardon the term. Uh, and actually, uh, in many cases, um, such as the Diocese of Constance, the uh, bishop. Um, closed one eye to every uh, broken vow of celibacy, but imposed a tax on the head of every illegitimate child fathered by a priest. So therefore it was a source of income for the bishop, for these priests who had basically common law wives and most of them were monogamous relationships. Um, so that has to be done away with. But how do you enforce it? That was hard. Abolish sexual harassment by clergy, especially in the confessional. More about this in the, in the next slide. Very common. This is not something that only happened in the 20th century. Uh, this has been happening all along, but there was a concerted effort made after the Council of Trent to put an end to this. And actually the confessional box that we all know was invented during this period as a way of, you know, clamping down or preventing the sexual harassment. And this takes people by surprise. Establish seminaries for the training of clergy. Well, what do you mean? What do you mean they didn't have seminaries in the Middle Ages? 
Yeah, they had them, but not every diocese had a seminary. And many clergy never uh, studied in seminary. Uh, but now after the Council of Trent, bishops are commanded to establish seminaries. In France, it doesn't happen for quite some time uh, because uh, the king is telling the bishops, no, you cannot establish seminaries. So seminaries in France are slowly, slowly created by religious orders rather than bishops. How about those contemplative monastics who are always going out and about? No, enforce strict enclosure, especially for the women contemplatives, for the nuns. Oh, remove all that lascivious and sexually suggestive religious art. Protestants complained about that. That, that was not easily done either. And root out and abolish superstitious practices, which were very, very uh, endemic and continued to be. I should point out, um, French historian Jean Delumeau has argued that this period, the early modern period, the Protestant and Catholic reforms together were actually uh, aiming to do the, the same thing, which was to finally, finally turn Europe fully Christian. Delamo's argument is that throughout the, that long 1500 year period, if you just scratched the surface of Catholic Christianity, as well as Orthodox Christianity in the East, oh, didn't take you long to find some paganism. Now about that abuse of the confessional. Actually, I gave a lecture um, there at, at um, Catholic U uh, just before the plague hit in 2020. I did in the fall of 2019 and, and the audience was not too happy with what I had to say, I think. It was a conference on, you know, how, how to fix, uh, how the, what the laity can do to help reform the present day church. I brought this up as an example. Well, you know, uh, the Inquisition came in handy with this uh, abuse of the confessional because lay people could go to the Inquisition and denounce abusive priests. And that's what happens in Spain. We've got thousands of cases of uh, priests being denounced by lay people for abusing the confession. And uh, no, no one wanted to hear that, you know, one way lay people can fix the church is by reestablishing the Inquisition. <laughs> of course, I wasn't 100% serious, but there is something to that. And there you have the confessional box, keeping that priest away from the women. Uh, what's another thing that Trent does? Censorship. The Index Librorum Prohibitorum. Index of Forbidden Books. There's a list for you. The M's. Look at those names. You won't recognize most of them, but right in the middle, you might find recognize Martinus Luterus, right? Uh, and then towards the bottom of the list, Matthias Flaccus Illyricus, another Protestant, a Protestant church historian. And the index kept being updated constantly. Liturgical reforms. Second Vatican Council is perhaps best known for its liturgical reforms, you know, bringing 
vernacular language in and many other things. Well, this also surprises people that, you know, there, there, there were local rubrics throughout Catholic Europe. And, you know, if you traveled to another country or some other region not too far from your own diocese, uh, you, you might find the, find the mass slightly different. Yes, it was in Latin, but there was no uniformity. The Roman Missal is a product of the Council of Trent. And there you have a 1665 edition on the left. And then what about the other um, rituals of the church? Well, such as exorcism, for instance, you find them codified and uh, standardized in the Rituale Romanum. Uh, and there you have a um, 1615 edition of the Rituale Romanum. And when the uh, rite of exorcism was recently updated uh, within our lifetimes, uh, actually what was updated was this, the Rituale Romanum. That uh, was a product of the Council of Trent. Council of Trent put a lot of responsibility on bishops for implementing the reforms. And one of the first to do so was Carlo Borromeo, Archbishop of Milan, came from a very wealthy, powerful, noble family. He could have very comfortably uh, stayed in Rome as part of the Curia. But no, he went back to Milan and um, was one of the first to implement the reforms of Trent. As a matter of fact, the confessional box originated there in the diocese of Milan. But it wasn't easy for Borromeo. There on the left-hand side, you have an image of an attempt that was made on his life by a disgruntled cleric who didn't want to be reformed, uh, who shot him in the back as he was praying during a a liturgy. And um, what saved his life was the fact that his clerical vestments, his liturgical vestments were so thick that, that the bullet bounced off. So it was almost like Kevlar. Um, he survived. Um, there was a bishop of Barcelona who also tried to reform his clergy. And um, they put poison in the communion wine for him. Fortunately, it was discovered and he escaped unharmed. The hardest segment of the clergy to reform were the cathedral canons, because they came from very powerful, wealthy families. And many of them had been appointed canons, you know, as benefices, as income. Uh, and they were also surplus uh, children of the high and mighty. And they were not necessarily uh, in there because they had a vocation for it. The cathedral canons were so difficult to reform. Doctrine? Well, things are clarified by the Council of Trent. And um, the Council of Trent also calls for the production of catechisms. And boy, do the clergy uh, respond, creating catechisms. Uh, this one by Peter Canisius, a Jesuit, is the one for advanced students. Canisius actually wrote three different catechisms, one for beginners, uh, younger, 
second one for um, adolescents or people who were just not too well educated. And then this one, uh, more advanced, and it's the standard catechism format. Question, answer. Uh, here in, in German, when is the resurrection? Uh, why is the resurrection? Why is there a resurrection? And then in the next page, you'll have the answers. And devotional manuals, boy, they pour off the presses. They just come flowing out by the hundreds. And um, here are two of the most often republished, so therefore bestsellers. The Spiritual Combat by Lorenzo Scupoli on the left, and the Introduction to the Devout Life by St. Francis de Sales. Both of them are instruction manuals, how-to manuals. How do you live as a good Catholic Christian in a very corrupt world? And it gives you all kinds of advice. Uh, St. Francis de Sales, for instance, uh, the very opening section of his Introduction to the Devout Life, he says, you use this book like a little bunch of flowers that you put up against your nose as you're walking through city streets. Well, what's that? What does that mean? Remember, um, cities were not very clean. Cities did not smell very nice. People usually threw their, their refuse and would normally go down a sewer in, in, in a modern city was just simply tossed onto the street back then. So, um, Francis de Sales says, you know, this is what the world is like. The world is a cesspool. It's a cesspool. It's a stinking cesspool. And you need these instructions like to hold them against your nose, you know, take them to heart and reform your life. You can be a good Catholic Christian. And it's just aimed at lay people, too, I should stress, right? You don't have to live like a monk. You don't have to be, a, a, you know, an, an ascetic devoting your entire life. Uh, in a monastery to prayer, you can live that kind of life in the world. And he's got all sorts of instructions for this, like uh, be careful with dancing and parties. Now, here's a medieval institution or a series of institutions that are enhanced by the Council of Trent. These are lay confraternities lay involvement, devote, and, and, and confraternities came in all shapes and sizes, and you might have heard some about this today, or perhaps you'll hear about it tomorrow or the next day. Um, what the Council of Trent uh, does that to reform confraternities is that it insists that every confraternity must have direction from at least one priest, and that they should be attached to a parish church or a, a church run by regular clergy, so that it's not totally lay controlled. But there's an upsurge in confraternity membership, and this is one way that the laity are reformed by Trent, but encouraged to join these confraternities. You have devotional confraternities that usually you know, celebrate certain feast days or dedicate themselves to some kind of 
uh, veneration or devotion. And there on the right-hand side, you've got a procession taking place in Florence. Um, next Sunday, Corpus Christi. Oh boy, those Corpus Christi processions carried out by confraternities. That they still take place in many places in the Catholic world. Um, but um, you also had penitential confraternities. And the, all of these you can find in the Middle Ages too, but in, in, in the 16th and 17th century, they, they get um, not only strengthened in numbers, but also in, in clerical guidance. What did penitential confraternities do? Well, you know, they attended funerals. They were especially very important in, in Holy Week processions. Uh, during plagues, you know, they would take up a fasting and, and, and self-punishment. And they also aided um, the dying. A very important role played by these penitential confraternities that has basically disappeared in modern day, in present day Catholicism. And also charitable confraternities. And this too uh, catches some people by surprise. Well, what do you mean? Uh, this is what I mean. <laughs> Charity, what we call welfare, social welfare, right? Throughout the Middle Ages and speed it up and, and, and actually um, reinforced, uh, weaponized, or turbocharged by the Council of Trent. Lay people establish hospitals, orphanages, leprosariums, sanitariums, poor houses, homeless shelters, prostitute rehabilitation centers, you name it. And these are lay confraternities. Main difference between Catholics and Protestants on the social scale, social level, is that Protestants uh, reform poor relief by making uh, make, turning charity into a tax. Everyone is taxed by the civil government and the civil government takes care of all these things. In Catholic cultures, no, charity, if you tax people and charity is distributed based on, on uh, the income of ta from taxes by the civil powers, then there is no charity. Charity ceases. That's not charity. So um, many of these confraternities were very, very conscious of the fact that you know if if all of their welfare work went to the civil government, their salvation was actually imperiled because where's the charity? Where can I? distribute to the poor, so on and so forth. This takes off uh, even more stronger than it had in the Middle Ages, the Council of Trent. Um, and here's a shocking pie graph for you. This is another result of the Council of Trent. The door is open for the creation of new religious orders. And look at this pie chart. There were more religious orders established in the 16th and 17th century than in the previous 15 centuries put together. 
And these religious orders all specialized. This is very modern. You know, you create a religious order that has very specific purpose to serve a very specific need in the church and in society. And there are far too many to list, as you can see from the chart, for heaven's sakes, it's just astounding the sheer number of new religious orders established in this period. I'll go through some of them. The Jesuits, perhaps the best known, founded by Ignatius Loyola, uh, 1540, a former Basque Spanish knight who um, had a conversion experience after being wounded uh, in a battle. And uh, as, as the saying goes, you know, the rest is history. The Jesuits, usually in, in um, Protestant textbooks, described as the shock troops of the Counter-Reformation. Yes, they were important, but there were many other orders that were important. But the Jesuits do have a sort of unique leadership role that they assume in the 16th and 17th century. And um, boy, they are dead set on taking back what has been lost to Protestantism. Um, there's the um, image in, at St. Peter's of St. Ignatius Loyola crushing heresy at his tomb in Rome at the Jesu Church. Uh, there's a statue, uh, a sculpture by Pierre Legros, which shows the church triumphant, overthrowing heresy and hatred. Um, you can't see it here, uh, of course, but on the right-hand image here, uh, the book being torn to shreds by, by, by that little angel uh, is by Ulrich Zwingli, the Swiss reformer. <laughs> and the book under the figure that's falling off to the right-hand side Luther is the author of that one. And there's Mother Church. And this is at Ignatius's altar. So they advertised their anti-Protestantism. Look at this. These two images are on the facade of the Jesu Church in Rome. Ignatius crushing heresy and um, Francis Xavier stamping out paganism. And you might say, oh, my God, that's politically incorrect. What is this? Oh, my God. Lord, help us. Uh, I'll, I'll get back to that, to the mission uh, dimension of Council of Trent. Here are the spiritual exercises of Ignatius Loyola. Uh, everyone uh, who has commented on it, at least that I have read, says this is a kind of a psychological uh, tour de force, a masterpiece of sorts in understanding the way the human mind uh, can reshape itself and reshape human life and human behavior. You, know, you go through the spiritual exercises uh, for several weeks, and uh, you're supposed to come out a very different, much better person. This is not a book to be read. It's actually a guide for those who are conducting the exercises on how to conduct them. Very important for Catholic piety, post-Council of Trent. But to the missions. There was name back then. There's nothing wrong with being a missionary and going and trying to get people elsewhere to become Christians. Um, as a matter of fact, I was at a, a conference here um, on Saturday where a, a student uh, was presenting the case for, you know, 
how how many students are are afraid to speak their minds nowadays because of the backlash that they receive on social media? And he brought up an example of someone who said that they were going to go um, to some mission in some other part of the, the world, some third world country. And on Facebook and other social media, this person was trashed by hundreds and hundreds of fellow classmates for doing something that was so awful and wrong and politically incorrect. So, but the Jesuits are just the opposite in the 16th and 17th century. There they are in Japan, missions in Asia, China. Uh, Matteo Ricci is the man uh, pictured there. Matteo Ricci goes to China and tries to become as Chinese as possible to convert the emperor is his goal. Converting the emperor never succeeds, but um, the Jesuit method of converting people was to try to make Christianity as close as possible to their native culture. This would get them into trouble later. I'll get to that in a few minutes. But uh, the Jesuits saw nothing wrong in making Catholicism as Chinese as possible. South America, missions to South America, more of the same. North America, more of the same, Jesuits everywhere, and plenty of martyrs too. Other orders, the Ursulines, Angela Merici, founded by Angela Merici, teaching, teaching girls. Jose de Calasans, the Pierrists or Scalapians, teaching boys. The Scalapians, this is a long, sad story. I don't have time for it, and I'm sorry I don't. But they opened the first truly free public schools in Europe. And they aimed at educating the children of the poor and teaching them useful arts, such as accounting, <laughs> writing and note-taking and so on and so forth for the ever-growing bureaucracies that were emerging in Europe at the time. But poor, poor Jose de Calazans, he got booted out of, the, even though he established the order, uh, he got booted out by a gang of um, very privileged pedophiles who eventually almost destroyed the order. But the story has a happy ending and that he was reinstated. He's Saint Jose de Calasans. Um, all the charges against him were proven false. Juan de Dios founded the Hospitallers, the order dedicated to hospital work. And he used to beg in the streets uh, in Seville, with the following uh, chant uh, saying to people, help yourselves, give to the poor. Help yourselves, give to the poor. Again, this, this very uh, sort of intense, early modern Catholic focus on charity as something that scores your points with God. Help yourself. Gift to the poor. Vincent de Paul, the Vincentians, also known as the Lazarus, too, uh, very involved in, in charity work. Contemplative orders. Teresa of Avila uh, reformed the Carmelites, established the Discalced Carmelites. More about Teresa several times than 
the next couple of days. Uh, Jean-Francois de Chantal, along with Francis de Sales, establishes the Visitation Sisters. Um, John Eudes, uh, the Eudists, they established seminaries in France. And Jean-Jacques Ollier, also the Sulpicians, they established seminaries in France. These two men established seminaries before any bishop in France. More contemplatives, Matteo Bassi uh, reforms the Franciscans, establishes the Capuchins, and Armand Jean Le Boutillier de Rancet, the Trappists or Cistercians of the Strict Observance. Now, <clears throat> to move on to the global church, this is a, another characteristic of the Tridentine church. It is a truly global church. I see this painting by Velasquez as, as so, so strongly um, <clears throat> reifying the, the personality required to be a missionary in the 16th and 17th century. This was Jerónima uh, de la Asunción, a, a Spanish Franciscan nun, who at the age of 65 set sail for the Philippines and established the first convent in the Philippines and all of East Asia. Now, granted, the, the, the nuns did not really act as missionaries teaching the natives as much as the males did, but this woman uh, at age 65 took on this job. After sailing through the Atlantic, she and her sisters walked from the Atlantic coast to the Pacific coast of Mexico, boarded another boat, and then crossed the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> to go to a land where, of course, absolutely no one was Christian. Japan, the martyrs of Nagasaki. Uh, the Jesuits had been very successful, and so had the Franciscans in Japan. But um, the emperor in Japan, um, long political side to this, the emperors said, uh, decided to centralize and increase their power. The Christians were a threat. Uh, the martyrs of Nagasaki. The Japanese were uh, very impressed by the crucifixion. So they used it as a, as a method of execution. But they also, as the persecutions in, increased, devised other means of torture that were actually worse than crucifixion, such as what you see on the right-hand side binding people in this cocoons, hanging them upside down over a pit until they died. On the left-hand side, you see these fumier. Um, Christians were told, okay, step on this icon, step on the sacred icon, and we won't kill you. All these martyrs in Japan who end up being killed are Christians, both native and missionaries, who refuse to step on the sacred image. It's an echo here of what's going on in Europe, because in Europe, the Protestants have been destroying sacred images. And if you have a chance, if you haven't seen it yet, the movie Silence and the novel Silence, uh, fiction, but a, a fictionalized uh, account of what happened to the Christians in Japan. Very moving, very difficult to read. Actually, the book, I started the book years ago and have never been able to finish it because it's so moving and disturbing. 
In China, this is what happens. Look, uh, a missionary, Giulio Alenio, Italian, uh, Life of Christ, turns, turns the whole New Testament into a Chinese story. There you have it. Um, there's the woman washing Jesus' feet with her hair. And on the right-hand side, you have the multiplication, the loaves and fishes for the Chinese in Chinese. But in 1715, um, this is a long, long story. Uh, the Franciscans especially are very upset with the Jesuits for making Catholicism overly Chinese. So this becomes known as the Chinese rights controversy. But uh, in 1715, a papal bull officially condemns these Chinese rights. And we don't have time to go through the whole text, but there it is. Uh, you've got to stop a lot of these things. The New World, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, this global church is part of colonization and it involves a lot of brutality. And that is a very dark side to this missionizing in the New World. Um, on the left, you have Santiago or St. James, the Moorc slayer, who becomes um, the conquistador in the New World, who becomes the Indian slayer. So we're running out of time. We'll end with this. There is a crisis of conscience about all of this brutality in the New World. And um, there's a debate. Uh, by clergy. Actually, in, in, in one case, you've got Dominicans on both sides. Juan uh, Ginés de Sepulveda argues that the New World natives are natural slaves, an Aristotelian term. But there will be other Dominicans opposing him, especially these three. School of Salamanca, who uh, argue that there is no such thing as a natural slave. And these, these people deserve the same respect and have the same rights as full human beings. There's a debate that's held that they changed some laws in the Spanish colonies, but ultimately uh, the brutality continues. But the new world is Christianized, it's Catholicized. Um, and you end up having native saints, uh, several of them in the first century, in the 16th and 17th century. So I'll end there with the global church and the problems that came along with creating a Catholic church in the new world. Um, and I will exit this screen. And now if there are questions, I'm ready. Thank you, Professor. Thank you so much. Uh, so you touched on this very briefly at the end, but I was wondering if you could speak to some of the specific reforms that took place uh, post-Trent within the established religious orders um, as to like some of the specific reforms. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Well, um, the, within the specific religious orders, the, the, the main issue is that you're welcome to establish new religious orders, right? Whereas before there was sort of a cap put on the establishment of new religious orders. And now it, it's relatively easier to establish them. But also, just as important, 
is the creation of sub-branches of some orders that are stricter, that go back to the original rule, and the original rule is followed more strictly. So you've got new orders that are brand new, and you also have new orders within old orders where the lives of the men and women involved become truly more focused on what they are supposed to be doing. And the Descalced Franciscans, the Capuchins, the Descalced Carmelites, the Trappists, they're a good example of this. Um, the idea that you can devote your order to teaching right, rather than to um, being meditative, contemplative, is something that takes off in a big way. I mean, the Dominicans and the Franciscans had, had done this previously, too. They're out in the world living with people, preaching, teaching, teaching at universities and so on. But now it, it, it becomes more common to do this uh, through religious orders. You've got a need to fill. Here's a religious order that will fill that need. Yeah, basically, a, a quite a simple question. What um, what aspects of the Council of Trent do you believe were a negative impact on the church? Um, I mean, you, you've, you've mentioned a, a number of things, but for example, the liturgical reform um, certainly had many good things about it. But I mean, one of the big components of it was restricting um, a lot of local um uh liturgies um and even i mean the discalced carmelites that you just mentioned um john of the cross wanted um the discalced carmelites to continue with the carmelite liturgy but they were forced right. to take the yeah. um, well this is yeah i mean i i'm not um i'm not sure exactly if anyone has actually done work on this as a subject right of the aspects of the reforms of the council of trent that actually stifled certain developments. But uh, I can say this, this is all pure speculation, but um, Eamon Duffy, a historian, um, English historian, wrote a book on, on the time when uh, Queen Mary was on the throne and tried to re-Catholicize England. And of course, uh, she, she died in 1558. So she died before the Council of Trent had finished. Duffy speculates that if Mary had lived longer, perhaps her Reformed English church could have been a model for the Council of Trent. Because in the church that she was trying to rebuild, reform in England, she had married priests, for instance. The liturgy had already been uh, turned into English and so on. And in England, it was being seriously considered to keep the uh, liturgies in English, have married clergy, so on and so forth, and have, you know, their own English rites. Um, I think Duffy's right that perhaps if they had seen uh, uh, some kind of success in this in England, it would have been carried out. But, you know, I agree with what you say, that there, there was much that was stifled, but it was stifled um, out of largely Two things, fear of decentralizing too much, 
And the other is the opposite effect, the attempt to centralize as much as possible and make Catholicism the same everywhere. Uh, to universalize a certain kind of Catholicism. So, um, yeah, that's a good topic for someone to write a whole book on. <laughs> what didn't happen because of the Council of Trent? Uh, thank you for, uh, thank you, Professor. I had a question speaking to, I guess, um, speaking to culture and uh, the ecclesiology we've been discussing today, the last couple of points you made about um, these, this Aristotelian idea of natural slaves, the uh, different discussions that we were having uh, about the brutality in the, uh, the new world. Um, and it seems like even uh, today, we're still kind of uncovering or still trying to discern what our Catholic stance was on it. Um, I mean, with uh the native boarding schools that uh, were erected through, I guess, political and church yeah. involvement. Um, I know that this is maybe going a little bit further into uh, past the part of history that we're speaking to, um, but you had the School of Salamanca speaking that uh, they're deserving of equal respect. And, you know, this idea of natural slaves isn't something we should be uh, executing, but um, was that really something that, you know, didn't move far enough to avoid um, a lot of the catastrophe that we're discovering was going on in these schools? Well, it, it did um, create laws, but laws, whether they're ecclesiastical laws or civil laws, you can, you, you, you can draw up laws and institute laws, but actually making them work is quite another thing. Laws, all sorts of laws protect the Indians' rights and declare the, the New World natives fully human. However, for instance, in the Catholic Church, in the New World, for centuries, no native clergy, because part of the, the pushback against the natural slave idea was, look, they're not natural slaves. They're not inferior humans, but they're like children. So there was a very paternalistic attitude taken. So they're, they're children and it's gonna take generations for them to be ready. So this is why in Asia, you have native Catholic clergy from the 16th century onwards, but in the new world, you do not because the Asian civilizations were advanced and there's none of this paternalism. So yeah, there are many, many ways in which, you know, the church is no different from the world in this respect, because, you know, it's the same people you're talking about a certain culture and um, racism was endemic and um, very hard to overcome. But you do have uh, individuals who stand out. Uh, those who lead the debate uh, uh, against the natural slave idea, for instance, uh, there was a Jesuit, uh, Peter Claver, or Claver, in um, Cartagena, Colombia, uh, who ministered to the, the African slaves. I didn't even have time to touch on this, you know. Oh, there are no natural slaves in the New World, but we can import slaves from Africa. 
the picture, you know, this is this is the thing about um, ecclesiology as it's drawn up theoretically, and then ecclesiology as it's it's actually practiced on the ground level. At the ground level, you have all of the social, cultural uh, traits that are very very hard to dislodge. And in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 21st century, some of these are still very hard to dislodge. Um, and um, there are always individuals who try to buck the trend. Uh, Bartolome de las Casas, another Dominican, uh, who, who argued for the full humanity of the Indians. Also, he later regretted this and regretted it deeply uh, advised that, you know, to make life easier on the natives in the new world, African slaves should be brought in to do the work. He later realized that he had just created a larger problem by saying that. Okay. Hi, thank you. Um, so obviously we hear talk of a quote unquote spirit of Vatican II in which, um, you know, the idea is that some of the implementation of the form transcended and even transgressed the documents of the council themselves. Um, do you think it's fair to say that there was in the, in the years after the Council of Trent, a, a quote unquote spirit of Trent, because um, some of the, I mean, another question addressed um, any negative um, associations, or sorry, this microphone is, um, some negative um, repercussions of the, of the council. And um, just from, from reading, I know that Spirit of Trent can, or excuse me, the council can be viewed with, and uh, in, in its aftermath can be viewed as overly, you know, uh, having triumphalism, clericalism, um, things like that. And, you know, it could even, uh, or people have said that, you know, the, this kind of quote unquote spirit of Trent is actually the reason for the later spirit of Vatican II, quote unquote, as a, as a strong reaction. So I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Well, um, I, I, I think uh, one way to answer that question is to begin by uh, focusing on the term that Pope John the Twenty Third loved to use uh, about the Vatican Council: "Aggiornamento." Let's bring the church up to date. And and if you think about that model, that that way of thinking is that. The world and the church are moving on two different tracks. The world is moving forward, changing in a certain direction. The church is lagging behind and needs to be brought, quote unquote, literally, up to day, aggiornamento. Second Vatican Council had that in mind. Council of Trent did too but it was a different day, that's the thing, that the aggiornamento carried out by the Council of Trent was very different because the day was different. And actually all of this very, very um, aggressive uh, anti-Protestantism and aggressive missionizing is part and parcel of that day. 
Whereas in the mid 20th century, the Second Vatican Council had to deal with many things that the church had been dealing with piecemeal. You know, there, there, the, the First Vatican Council um, and, and, and papal encyclicals from that time period, the late 19th century, uh, there are some of these encyclicals from the late 19th century that are making an attempt to, to bring the church up to date without a council, uh, such as uh, Rerum Novarum, for instance, uh, on, on capitalism and, and industrialization and so on. Um, there are other ways that the church has handled the aggiornamento thing, but there's no better way uh, in, in Catholic history to make sure you have big scale changes, big fix, than to have a council. And as a matter of fact, I had this sort of, you know, in, in a sort of negative way pointed out to me years and years ago uh, by a Presbyterian colleague who said, you know, I envy you Catholics <laughs> because you can call a council or you can have the Pope say, okay, this is going to change and boom, it changes. He says, but in my own church, if you do that, you end up with three or four or five Presbyterian churches because there's no center. And I thought, well, you know, there's something to that. There's something to that. But of course, we've got two completely different ecclesiological models at work. But the fact that he said, I envy you for having this ability to make, you know, rapid change happen. Uh, and it can happen with an encyclical. It can also happen uh, even more intensely and more quickly with a council. And, and a lot depends on who's attending that council, too, uh, and um, how quickly the council works. So, you know, I highly recommend uh, reading uh, John O'Malley's book on the Council of, of Trent so that you see how difficult it was. He also has a book on, on the Second Vatican Council that's just as brilliant. Um, and you can get a glimpse of what it's like to um, formulate reforms collectively. And you have committees, you have little groups that propose certain changes and then the changes get changed and then they go up for a vote and you don't know how it's all going to turn out. Uh, the same thing that happened with one papal uh, encyclical, um, Humanae Vitae, was that actually Pope Paul VI uh, got the recommendation to actually allow contraception, but he as Pope decided no. And this can happen uh, with councils with a vote too. You can have a, a group of reformers who wanna go in a certain direction, but they're outnumbered. And that's the, where the theology of the Holy Spirit enters into Catholic ecclesiology, is that if this is, this is the real council, not the robber council of Ephesus, for them, but this is a real council, the Holy Spirit uh, is actually guiding the vote. And not everyone is going to be pleased. Uh, as, as happened with the First Vatican Council, pronouncing on papal infallibility, you had the breakaway um, old Catholic church, mostly in Germany. Uh, some people will not be pleased. You cannot please everyone. 
Thank you, Professor. Thank you. Wish I could be with you. <laughs>